This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 53. I believe very firmly that effective communication, period, not just spontaneous, but any communication must be structured. And to me, a structure is not a list. It's not bullet points. A structure is a logical connection of ideas. It's a framework, a recipe, a map, whatever analogy you want to use. When you are trying to persuade, you want to make sure that you structure your comments so that they are clear, concise, and compelling. And a structure helps you do that. What makes someone a great on-the-spot communicator? How can using simple communication structures make you more persuasive, clear, and compelling? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Matt Abrahams, who's an innovative educator, author, podcast host, and coach. He is the Larson Lamb Family Lecturer in Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, where he teaches two very popular classes in strategic communications and effective virtual presenting. Matt is also the host of a very popular podcast called Think Fast, Talk Smart, and the author of two books, including his latest one, which we're going to talk about today, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. And speaking successfully when you're put on the spot is an important skill for all HR leaders and just one of the many reasons why I was excited to have Matt join us in the podcast today. I also highly recommended Matt's book. It's very pragmatic and has so many different tools and techniques that'll make you a better communicator almost overnight. In my conversation with Matt today, we discuss why he believes learning spontaneous communication is like playing a team sport, why you should strive for mediocrity, not perfection in your communications, his two-step approach to overcoming your anxiety when you're asked to speak, how to structure your spontaneous communications so they're clear, concise, and compelling, why he views feedback as an invitation to problem solve, and how to give better feedback using his four eyes feedback model and much, much more. Matt, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited for our conversation. We're excited to have you on to talk about your new book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, which is a tremendous book, but you also have a great podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, and that people should also check out. So we're going to learn a lot about communication today. I'm going to try to do my best to be a great podcast host because you are a good podcast host. But let's start off talking about you teach, you write, you consult. It's all about communications. Where did this passion for communications come from? Well, thank you. And I appreciate the compliment on being a good podcast host. It's hard work and you do a great job as well. So communication is something I've always been fascinated by. When I was much younger, I had two really impactful events happen to me. When I was about seven or eight, my mother decided it was time for us to have a garage sale. My brother and I had so much garbage everywhere. She wanted us to just, you know, get it out there, sell it, get it out of the house. And we were putting up signs. And where I grew up, there were lots of garage sales every Saturday. And my mother instructed my brother and me to craft signs, but to misspell the word garage. 
And if you put a B right in the middle of garage, you get garbage. So we had a garbage sale and everybody else in the neighborhood had a garage sale. And amazingly, we did better than anybody else. And my mother is convinced that the purpose of this, the reason we did well is because we stood out. Our, our communication was different and drew people in. I think people thought we were stupid and just got a better deal. But the point is, I learned very young that through communication, you can actually influence people. And then when I was a 14-year-old boy in high school, I was instructed by my high school English teacher to go to a speech tournament and to give a speech. And I was very, very nervous about it. And I did a speech on the martial arts. I was told to talk on something I was passionate about. And I started my speech with a karate kick. And I ripped my pants in the first 10 seconds of a 10-minute speech from belt buckle to zipper. And I learned at that moment just how much anxiety can impact communication because I was so nervous I forgot to put on my special karate pants. So those two episodes really had me focus from a young age on communication and anxiety around communication. And I just found passion in that in my college career, in my graduate school career. And what I do today is teaching strategic communication. That's an incredible story because I think you know, we all have formative moments yeah. that help inform our narrative yeah. or where we want to go with our life. I think that's really awesome to know that's where kind of your passion came from. And then what made you decide to write the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter? And, you know, and who was it for? Who are you writing this for? Well, the second part is easy. Everybody. And here's why. In all my years of teaching communication skills, and I've been doing this for several decades now, the focus has often been on planned communication. You've got a pitch, a presentation, a meeting you're running. But if you think about it, most of our communication happens in the moment. People asking us questions, we have to give feedback, we make a mistake, and we have to correct that mistake. So the book is written to help people in those moments, and there isn't a lot out there. And the reality is most of us get very uncomfortable in the moment where we're put on the spot. Think of small talk. Think of being asked in the moment to introduce somebody. So the book is targeted to help people feel better in those moments. And it's based out off of almost a decade's worth of work that I've done at Stanford's Graduate School of Business on how to help our students as burgeoning young leaders to communicate more effectively. And I saw that you put that workshop together a while back. And did that become a real big hit that you sort of surprised, like how passionate people were? And they're like, we need this. Yeah. So <laughs> and we want more. So of what it. happened was beyond my keen interest in this anyway, the deans of the business school came to me and said, we have a big problem. Our amazingly bright students are panicking and unable to perform well in cold calling. You remember back in school when the professor would say, what do you think? And you'd have to respond. Our students were really struggling. So they, they knew I studied communication and they said, can you help us design something? So I designed a workshop based on research in psychology, anthropology, neuroscience, improvisation. And that workshop now is taken by most Stanford MBA students within the first three or four weeks of their attending the business school. What really surprised me, I mean, it was great that it worked. It helped the students. We, we've been doing it for, for a long, long time now. But I was invited to do this very same workshop for an alumni weekend where I came in and did the workshop. And right before I went on stage, the woman who invited me to do it said, hey, do you mind if we simulcast this? And I said, sure, no problem. It was a early Saturday morning. Who the heck's going to watch this? What I didn't realize is they were videotaping it and they posted it online and the talk went viral and millions and millions of people have seen the talk. And the thing that I take most pride in is 
People write me from all over the world, from places I don't even know where they are, and say that the talk helped them with a job interview, helped them give feedback when their boss asks them, helped them make small talk so they can now better connect. So I take great pleasure in knowing that people are using these skills and people way beyond the students that I initiated the, this for. That's awesome. I think that's what it's all about is really helping give yes, back and, and making that impact. What talk is that? Or do you remember where we could find yeah, that? If you go to YouTube and type in think fast, talk smart, you will find this talk. It, uh, you'll also find a bunch of the podcast episodes that are also on YouTube with the same name, but uh, it's the only video with that name. All right, terrific. We will check that out. You've also been known to say that learning spontaneous communications like playing a sport. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So when you learn to play a sport, you practice, you prepare for what happens when you're actually in the game. So if you are a basketball player, a soccer player, you dribble around cones, you might take uh, practice free shots or free throws. And these are ways of preparing yourself for when you're in the moment and have to respond spontaneously in the game. So the biggest irony of the book is that you can prepare to be spontaneous. And that sounds confusing, but in fact, if you think about it by using this analogy to sport or if you're a musician, same idea where you prepare and practice for certain situations. And then in the moment when you're playing the game or having a jam session, you just let it come out and it's there and goes well because of the preparation you put in. And I think a lot of people don't really think I can practice or prepare for spontaneous communications. Like I've just got to be good yeah. at it. But the ones, and I think especially executives that have become very versed at this, you almost know it's a talk track. Yeah. There's a way they're thinking about it, responding, especially the ones that are really, really good. CEOs have to do this all the time. Politicians won't get into <laughs> too much there. They have their own talk track. But I think it's so important for us because as you were talking about this, I thought about that Mike Tyson quote that everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the yes. face. And that's like an HR executive going to present their big plan to the CEO until they get asked a question they weren't ready for and the whole thing goes sideways and you never get to the presentation and the whole thing's over because you didn't have your talking points. So this is such an important point. We'll talk more about the different obstacles that you talk about in, in your book that just get in the yeah. way. Which ones are the most common? There's so many that get in the way. By far the biggest, and this is true of any communication, planned or spontaneous, is anxiety. Most people get nervous in high stakes communication situations. It's normal and natural to be nervous. In fact, up to 85% of people report feeling nervous when having to speak in high stakes situations. And quite frankly, I think the other 15% are lying. I think we could easily think of a situation that would make them nervous. So anxiety is one of the biggest obstacles. There's some things we can do to help ourselves feel less anxious. But another thing that we do is we strive for perfection. We really want to do it right. And I've been doing this work for so long. I'm here to tell you there is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways, but there is no one right way. And the stress and pressure we put on ourselves to do it right actually precludes us from, in many cases, doing it well. And then the final thing that I think gets in the way, final obstacle, is we see these, especially spontaneous speaking situations, as challenges, as threats, as tests. You know, when somebody says, okay, we're opening it up for Q&A, most people feel very defensive. And if we can change that, if we can change that mindset to be one more of opportunity, connection, collaboration, we can reduce that challenge. So there's three fundamental challenges. It's our anxiety, our desire to do it perfectly and seeing these situations as threats and challenges. 
let's talk more about anxiety yeah. a little bit. What are some of the strategies to not feel so anxious? Yes. Like you said, it's really natural. Yeah, no, it is natural. And in fact, anxiety can be a good thing when it comes to communication. It gives you energy, helps you focus, but too much of it can be de debilitating. So we need to learn to manage anxiety. The There's a two-pronged approach you have to take. You have to focus both on symptoms as well as sources. Symptoms are the things that we physiologically experience. I'd be curious, when you get nervous, what happens for you? What happens for me is I turn red and I perspire. Do you have some telltale signs for you? Yeah, I think I stutter yeah. a little bit. I think you start to get inside your own that's head. Right. You know, that's, that, that's Yeah, yeah, the fluency so for me, becomes like, an issue. Sometimes people the, speak faster yeah. and that causes fluency issues too. So there are things we can do to manage those symptoms. Uh, the single best thing you can do is to take deep belly breaths. When you take deep belly breaths, like if you've ever done yoga or tai chi, where you really fill your lower abdomen, you're slowing down your autonomic nervous system. And interestingly, and it's through my podcast that I learned this, I was talking to somebody who's an expert in these kind of things. And he taught me that what's most important is the exhale, not the inhale. So you want your exhale to be twice as long as your inhale. So if you take a three count in, take a six count out, and you only have to do this two or three times to have that reduction in in those symptoms. For you, this is going to help with the stuttering and stumbling because the faster you breathe, which happens when we get nervous, the faster we talk and the more stumbling we have. So slow, low breaths will slow you down. For people like me who blush and perspire, that's because you're getting hotter. When we get nervous, we heat up. That's because our heart's beating faster, our body's tensing. So you're pushing more blood through tighter tubes. It's like when you exercise. So to cool yourself down, hold something cold in the palms of your hand. Before I did this show with you, I was holding a cold glass of water so I wouldn't blush and perspire as much. We've all done this in reverse on a cold morning. If you've ever had held in your hand a warm cup of tea or coffee and felt it warm you up, you're just doing this in reverse. So there are things we can do to manage the symptoms. And then the sources are the things that make us nervous, how we frame the situation, how we try to be perfect, how we worry about the goals we try to achieve. So if we can reframe how we do that. So one thing that makes people nervous is they are afraid of not achieving their goal. My students want to get a good grade. They're afraid of that not happening. The entrepreneurs I coach are afraid of not getting funding. The people that your podcast is targeted towards might be afraid that their programs won't be adopted. So those are all future states, potential negative future states. So you can counteract that anxiety about the potential negative future by becoming present oriented. You can do that by doing something physical, taking some deep breaths, listening to music. There are lots of ways to get present oriented. So a long-winded answer, but a very detailed question, which is how do we manage anxiety? It's through addressing symptoms and sources. Really good tips. Very helpful. How about the getting over perfectionism yeah. or feeling like your communication has to be perfect? Yeah. So as I mentioned, there is no right way to communicate. Better ways and worse ways for sure. Very few situations present themselves to us where we have to say something exactly one way. Certainly, if you are in a legal situation, uh, some kind of contracting situation where there are terms and agreements, you might have to say things exactly one way or the other. But most of our communication is not that way. So I have the audacity in my MBA class to start the, on the very first day I make this proclamation. I tell my students to strive for mediocrity. And they look at me dumbfounded. These are some of the top business minds, young business minds in the world, and nobody has ever told them to be mediocre. What I'm really getting at here is 
when you strive to do it right, whatever that is, when you strive for perfection, you actually put a tremendous amount of pressure on yourself. And it comes down really to how your brain functions. It's all about cognitive load. Think of your brain as a computer. It's not a perfect analogy, but for this, it works. If you on your phone ever run multiple apps, or if you're on a a desktop or laptop and have multiple windows open, your central processor of your computer is working overtime. It's not actually being as efficient and as effective as it can because you've got so much going on. If I am constantly judging, evaluating, monitoring every single word I say, I actually have less cognitive bandwidth to produce the communication that I'm trying. So if we take that pressure away, just get it done, strive for mediocrity, we actually free up all those resources to apply to what we're actually communicating. So the whole sentence that I tell my students is strive for mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. In other words, turn down the volume on judging and evaluating yourself as you're speaking, which allows you to turn up the volume on your focus and what it is you're actually saying. You know, and then your book, you also, I think on this point, talked about the spotlight fallacy yeah. that you know, everyone's watching us and judging us. And is that true? Should we be worried about that as much as we feel internally? So we worry about how others perceive us much more than others are actually focusing on us. As you said, it's called the spotlight fallacy. So we feel like we're always in the spotlight and people are always judging and evaluating us. The reality is everybody is in their own spotlight as well, worried about how others see them. So it is important to come off well. It is important to prepare. It is important to think through things. But the level of intensity with which we envision people are evaluating us is not typically the case. Now, there are certain circumstances like a job interview or some kind of performance review. Yeah, people are really scrutinizing you perhaps to the level you're thinking. But in most interactions, that's not true. Really helpful to hear that piece because I think a lot of us really can start to, that's where the perfectionism comes to play, that I'm really trying to be perfect and thinking about how I'm communicating. Everyone's so focused on every word I'm saying when they're probably thinking about what they're going to have for dinner that night, right? (laughs) Absolutely. We over-rotate on that a lot. But as HR leaders, Matt, we're often in this position where we need to influence a decision Mm -hmm. with a business leader. And what are some of the most effective ways for us to structure our arguments so they're clear and have the highest likelihood of actually influencing that leader? Yeah, so great question. And you touched on the key word in my answer, which is structure. I believe very firmly that effective communication, period, not just spontaneous, but any communication must be structured. And to me, a structure is not a list. It's not bullet points. A structure is a logical connection of ideas. It's a framework, a recipe a map, whatever analogy you want to use. When you are trying to persuade, you want to make sure that you structure your comments so that they are clear, concise, and compelling. And a structure helps you do that. Perhaps one of the most common and useful persuasive structures is problem, solution, benefit. Or sometimes for HR professionals, it's a little different and it's opportunity, solution, benefit. So allow me to describe this. So sometimes when you're proposing a program or a proposal or some kind of change, you know, processes and procedures, you can start by saying, here's the problem that we're trying to solve. Articulate the problem, give details, data, stories, examples, and then say, here's our solution to that particular problem. And then if we invoke that solution to fix that problem, here are the benefits that we believe will come forth. And by structuring it that way, you package it up in a way that's very easy for the recipient 
to understand and often articulate. So when you talk to an executive committee, they make the decision, but they might have to share what they're deciding or go get more information from their teams. They need to then be able to cascade what you told them. And if you package it well, it makes it much easier for them. Now, there's a variation of this, as I mentioned, where it's not a problem you're solving, it's an opportunity. So things are okay, but we could do things even better. And HR loves those kind of opportunities. Hey, we're, we're doing this program's working really well, but we could make it better by doing X, Y, or Z. So you could make this structure opportunity solution benefit. And by thinking through that way, it helps you be more concise and it helps your audience remember better. So opportunity solution benefit or problem solution benefit. Yep. That is a great framework. And maybe a little too in the weeds, but when you think about a lot of our communications are PowerPoint. Sometimes they're emails. Sometimes they're in person. Is there more effective communication? Should you put together a deck that has opportunity, solution, benefit, send it out ahead of time, and then just sort of speak to those points? Should you try to put it up on your team's call and go through it? What really works? Because I think we've all seen it fail each different way, to be honest, as a leader. Yeah. Questions like this often come up to me when I teach my students or coach people. And and the answer really is it depends. We want there to be one clear answer. And very rarely in communication is there one clear answer. So I have a strong bias for when you pull people together to meet, that we should use the meeting for what meetings are good for, which is interaction, brainstorming, decision-making, testing of ideas. So anything, this is my personal preference, anything that can set us up for those types of meetings, I think is good to do. So is a pre-read a good idea? Yeah. If, if you can get, if everybody will actually do the pre-reading uh, and then you come into the room and then you have a discussion, I think that's a lovely way to maximize the benefit of meetings. What happens though, is because people don't do the homework, don't do the reading. So you have, end up with some who know a lot and some who don't know em- uh, enough. So you end up having to, to backfill where people are deficient in knowledge. I like the way that companies like Amazon and others do meetings. They actually don't do presentations at all. PowerPoint is not used. Instead, they create these documents, typically up to six pages. When you come into a meeting room, everybody reads the document. That's the first thing you do. Everybody then is on the same page, quite literally on the same page. And then you have your discussion. So to answer your question, are some things more effective than others? It really depends. I believe in maximizing the opportunity to to leverage the diversity of opinion, the creativity that's in the room. So if you send out a pre-read or I'm even a big fan of pre-videos or even record little podcasts or audio files and say, hey, everybody listen to this. And if everybody does that work, then you can start your meetings in a very different place. And the last thing I'll say, especially when it comes to slides. Now, slides are obviously for prepared communication because it's hard to create a slide in the moment, although you can whiteboard. Often when people use slides, they spend so much time creating the slides and no time really practicing what they're going to say that they actually do themselves a disservice. It is far better to practice than to create the perfect slide. I really agree with you. I mean, you really are, when you're having that opportunity to influence someone, you really want to influence them. It's not about, did you make the right slides? You're really trying to understand what are their perspectives? How do they see the problem? What are the obstacles? What do they really care about? And then find that solution. That's correct. And I'm probably, I'm guessing that I think this is effective, but it's a tell them what you told them, tell them, and then tell them again. But if you start the meeting off, even if you sent the deck out, it's probably a good idea to say, hey, we're here because we want to talk about this opportunity. Here's the solution and the benefit. And I hope we can make a decision today. Like, why are we here? And setting that up is super helpful as well. 
100% agree. And that, that structure you said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them what you told them. That's a structure, right? That's a way of organizing the expectations of your audience. So it can be helpful. Well, I do encourage people to check out your book because there's a lot of structures. It is so pragmatic and actionable. Lots of structures you will be able to take and actually apply, which is terrific. Thank you. The other one in HR, besides trying to influence, we give a lot of feedback mm -hmm. or we're coaching managers on how to give feedback. It's a critical skill for HR leaders. In your book, you outline what you call the four eyes method to providing feedback. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So feedback is a critical skill for many people, but it's certainly folks in the HR world. You're giving feedback to employees, to others outside your group. And you're also teaching people and in some cases holding people accountable. I'm thinking about performance reviews for the feedback they give. So feedback is really critical in the HR world. First and foremost, I think we need to look at feedback a little differently. To me, feedback is an invitation to problem solve. I'm talking about constructive feedback. It's an invitation to problem solve. Now, there are certainly actions or inactions that people do that you, you absolutely have to put a stop to. If somebody's doing something offensive or dangerous, that's not the type of feedback I'm talking about. That has to stop and you do it immediately. But when you have a situation, let's say somebody who isn't completing their work in a timely fashion or somebody who's not turning in the, their deliverables in a way that sets up everybody else for success in terms of their quality, for example. This is an opportunity to problem solve. So before you ever start giving a message, you need to think quickly, what might be leading to this behavior? And I have a very quick story to tell as an example of this. Many, many years ago, when my two children were younger, I was doing some work in my office and I hear this loud crash and I run out and there I see my older son standing on the counter, having reached above his head to pull a plate, which had clearly fallen on the ground and shattered. And being a good parent, I immediately look, make sure there's no blood, and I start yelling, what are you doing on the counter? Why are you doing that? You shouldn't do that. That's not safe. Uh, and through his tears, because I was yelling at him, uh, my son says that he was climbing up on the counter to get a plate for his younger brother because he didn't want to interrupt me because they knew I was doing important work. Well, how did I feel, right? I felt like a jerk, all right? Here, my kid is trying to do something very, very helpful, and I'm yelling at him. Now, should he have been given constructive feedback? Absolutely. What he did was dangerous. He should not have done it and he should not have do it in the future. But the way I approached it could have been very different. I shouldn't have been yelling. I should have changed. So the point is this, if you understand or at least think about what might motivate the behavior, it might change the feedback. So if somebody's not turning in their work on time or to a certain quality, if you were to learn that they were caring for a sick relative, would that change the feedback you gave versus if you thought the person was just out partying or playing video games or something like that? Certainly it would. So you have to think about feedback as an opportunity to problem solve and what might motivate the behavior. Once you've done that, the four eyes are simply a way of structuring feedback. And the four eyes are as follows. There's information, impact, invitation, and implication. So let me walk through those quickly. Information is simply objectively the behavior that you are giving feedback on. Often when we give feedback, it's not clear to the person receiving it, the specific nature. We expand or it's not clear. So I might say, this is now the third meeting that you've showed up with material that was not completed. That's very objective. Everybody can look. They can look at the time, look at the quality of the work. Impact is what it means for you, the feedback giver. So I might say something like, I feel you're not prioritizing this project to the same level the rest of us are. And the reason it's important to use I language, another reason I call it the four I's, 
is because it, you're trying to reduce defensiveness. If I'm trying to invite you to problem solve with me, I'm trying to reduce defensiveness. So when I say I feel or I think, that's very different than I, me saying you aren't prioritizing it. So you give the implication so the person understands how important this is, but you do it through your perspective. So it's information, impact, and then invitation. This is where you can either make a declarative statement, I need you to show up to the next meeting with the materials prepared, or you might say, what can I do or what can we do to help make sure that the materials are prepared next time? So your invitation can be a declaration or a question. And then finally, implications. And these are consequences, positive or negative. So I can say, if you show up on time with your material complete, uh, we'll finish this project early and be able to get new, exciting projects. Or I could say, if you continue to show up without your high quality output, we might have to remove you from the team. So the four eyes of information, impact, invitation, and implications can really help you structure your thoughts, but also package it up in a way that's understandable and easily digestible by your audience. Yeah, I really like this model. And you know, there are other models of feedback sure. that maybe have some similarities, of course. But what's really important, I think, for HR leaders listening is that you have a feedback model. And the four eyes is a great one. And what I suggest managers do and work with HR leaders is actually write down mm -hmm. all the eyes. Yeah. Because what will happen in the conversation is that that person will ask questions, they'll have an excuse, they'll have this, and you get off track. Yeah. And by the end of the conversation, you're like, I don't know if I delivered the feedback, did it land? I didn't get to implications. So you want to be crisp and clear. Yeah. Because in that structure, like you talked about, preparing to be spontaneous is exactly you know, what you need when you're giving great feedback. So. I love that model. I think it's going to be really helpful for HR leaders and business leaders. Thank you. And podcast. something you said that that's really important. Sometimes you can use this in the moment where you have to give feedback in the moment. And if you practice this structure, you can do it quickly. And what I would do retrospectively after it is I would type up an email saying, hey, it was really good to talk about this issue. And you can use the four eyes as the structure of the email. So I agree. If it's a planned thing, you can do it in advance. But if it's a spontaneous thing, you can do it retroactively to document what you said. Yeah. And you may need a cheat sheet, so write down the four yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sure thing. Well, Matt, we've covered a lot of ground here. And I mean, the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter is terrific. I do have one final question for you, if you'll indulge me. I know you're not an HR person, even though early in your career, yeah. you did some learning development yeah. and, uh, and you still do a lot of learning and development for folks, <laughs> obviously even today. Yeah. But the one word I like to ask and finish the podcast with is what's one word or phrase you believe will define the future of HR in the next five to 10 years? Well, I don't think this will surprise you or your listeners, but I think the word is agility. We have to be agile. Things are changing. Generative AI, we're having a generational change and who's at work. We're becoming more global in some ways and less global in other ways. So the ability to be agile, to be able to respond in the moment, to essentially be spontaneous. I think is critical to success, not just in HR, but for organizations generally. And I can tell you at, an, at a school, a business school where we're teaching MBA students, we are teaching lots of techniques about how to be agile and adjust as needed in the moment. Terrific. Agility is what we need for the future. Matt, thank you so much for being on here. The book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. It was a pleasure to meet you today. Absolutely. Great to meet you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Matt for sharing his insights on how to be a more effective, spontaneous communicator. 
As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Mita Malik, who's a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. She's a chief diversity officer and highly sought after speaker who's advised Fortune 100 companies and startups alike. She's a LinkedIn top voice and a contributor to Harvard Business Review, Adweek, Fast Company, and Entrepreneur. And she's also the author of a terrific new book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. In my conversation, Meet and I are going to discuss her career journey and the insights from her important new book. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.